following message was recorded at Spirit and Truth, the 2019 Clearing Up Shepherds Conference, presented by Warhorn Media. This session is titled, Worship on Earth, Substance, and was given by the Reverend Dr. Andrew Dion. Andrew is the Senior Pastor of Trinity Church PCA in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He has a Master's of Divinity from Covenant Theological Seminary and a Doctorate in Music Composition from the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. At the very end of his book, Persecution in the Early Church, Herbert Workman uh, writes the following about the witness of the early martyrs. The resolute renunciation of the world of which the martyrs were the crown and symbol did more than anything else to make the church strong to conquer the world. So it was the martyrs that that gave the early church uh, power. The martyrs were witnesses to the truth that only by renouncing the world can we really do anything for it. Then referencing Justin Martyr, he says, And the church was a vine which the more it bled under the pruning knife, the more fruitful it became. So jump forward then to the martyrs and the exiles of the early Reformation from Wycliffe to Huss to Tyndale to Luther to Knox to Calvin. We read of all those men undergoing certain kinds of persecution, and yet there was great fruitfulness from their work. In fact, it may be because of that persecution that they were able to leave behind decadence. Leave behind arguments that had no impact on the ground and focus on what really mattered. In that heat of exile and persecution, they wanted to know God and be known by God. In his book, A History of Worship in the Church of Scotland, William Maxwell tells the story of two of those men, exiles who found delight in the worship of God away from their homes. First, he tells us of Calvin. Calvin was banished from Geneva by the angry magistrates of the city. He left Geneva in 1538 and moved to Strasbourg, where he became the pastor of a, ch- uh, of a church of French-speaking exiles. An exile then was leading exiles in this church. There in Strasbourg, they would worship God following uh, Bucer's liturgy, and Bucer was the, uh, the main man in Strasbourg, so to speak, of the church. And uh, Calvin took his liturgy, slightly tweaked it, and uh, it went back to Geneva where it was slightly simplified, and slightly simplified not by, the, not by the desire of Calvin, but by the command of the magistrates who wanted it even simpler. And that liturgy for the worship, that worship service was used for decades. The second exile Maxwell writes about is John Knox, when Mary Tudor ascended the throne of England and brought back her beloved Roman Catholicism. Knox, upon his friends urging, left England in 1554. He made his way to Geneva eventually, where he, um, like Calvin and Strasbourg before him, was the, was the pastor of a church of exiles. So again, an exile pastoring a church of exiles. The liturgy... Uh, those English exiles used in their worship of God was an English translation of Calvin's order. When he was able to return to Scotland upon the accession of the ascension of, of Queen Elizabeth to the throne in 1559, Knox took a book of worship patterned after Calvin's liturgy back to Scotland. And Maxwell writes, the book of worship passed through successive editions and was commonly known as the psalm book or book of common order 
It was adopted formally by the General Assembly in 1562. And so reflecting a bit on the fact that exiles, leading exiles in worship, were, were developing the worship of the time, perhaps it's only the pain of persecution and even of exile that will make us appreciate our worship of God. The first generation of reformers, in many cases, their reform of worship would lead to their being killed or exiled. They had to contend with the Roman Catholic Church and all the nations, all the powers of the nations that were in league with the Roman Catholic Church. Nonetheless, they gave themselves wholeheartedly to the worship and the reformation of worship. They stripped away Roman Catholic superstitions and inventions and images and searched the scriptures for what God commanded and therefore what pleased him. Calvin learned from Bucer, Knox learned from Calvin, and out from these men, by the grace of God, would come an approach to the presence of God determined by scripture alone. Though the culture, though from culture to culture, obviously, there would be different languages used in the services and some different elements in the liturgies and some different order of what they did, there was undoubtedly a common purpose, much different from the idolatry that had captivated the church at the time. So again, David Maxwell says the Strasbourgian and Calvinian, we would say Calvinist, and following the Scottish, Scot, Scottish, Scottish, I don't know what that is. The Scottish Reformation of worship was startlingly radical. Though from our perspective, their liturgies might seem a little complicated, certainly compared to uh, an evangelical sort of two songs, homily, two songs liturgy. They were, in fact, incredibly simple forms and altered aggressively from the Roman Catholic Church and the Mass. What I'd like to note right now is simply that both the elements and the style, the elements of the service and the style of those elements of the worship changed. And those changes came because of the convictions that the Reformers received from the study of God's Word. So Maxwell, again... In his book, A History of Worship in the Church of Scotland, outlines eight significant commitments in the worship of the early reformers. And now think through if this matches our commitments in worship. Think through how this has formed the worship that we give ourselves to. One, the language used in the reformed worship was the vernacular spoken in a strong, clear voice. So perhaps this changed the style of worship more than any other element. Men of soft voice, like those in the Roman Catholic Church, would not be able to lead such worship. And in fact, we learn in Calvin's Company of Pastors, men, you remember reading that, that soft-voiced men were often rejected from being ordained to the pastoral ministry. Spurgeon, from his lectures to my students in the chapter on the voice, writes, Dr. Guthrie Guthrie charitably traces the slumbers of a certain Scotch congregation to bad ventilation in the meeting house. That has something to do with it, but a bad condition of the valves of the preacher's throat might be a still more potent cause. Brethren, in the name of everything that is sacred, ring the whole chime in your steeple. And do not don, do not pester your people with the ding-dong of one poor cracked bell. (laughs) 
so I mean, the, perhaps then the voice uh, having pipes that worked well meant more because there was no amplification. But nonetheless, there's a way that a man can speak where he conveys authority or a way that a man can speak where he conveys uh, mousiness, right? Maxwell also makes this important point about the change to the vernacular, the common tongue and strong voice. He says, thus, in one step, the ear replaced the eye in worship. The ear replaced the eye. And that is a significant change in the worship from the Roman Catholic Mass to Reformed worship. Think for a moment on that. In the worship of the early Reformed church, the ear replaced the eye. No more crucifixes and stained glass windows and statues of Mary and the host lifted up to be adored, but not touched or eaten. They came into worship to listen, not to look. They came now to worship by word and not by sight. They would hear and taste rather than simply see from a distance. That shift was undoubtedly the greatest change in the worship of the reformers and the Protestants. Significantly, today's worship is moving in which direction? Today's worship is moving from word, from, from ear to eye, back to the, the, the eye being the one, uh, the sense stimulated rather than the ear. We're moving backwards, becoming more visual and less oral. We have to resist the temptation to serve the eyes more than the ears and mouth. It indicates a move away from the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. Second, write down number two, children, because you're taking notes right now, right? Number two, second, Maxwell writes, the people were encouraged to share in the service as active participants. They were no longer passive observers. Worship became again, as it was originally, a corporate action. Under this point, he mentions this about the music. Popular participation was secured not only by the use of the normal language of, the, of every day, but also by casting the psalms into metrical forms and setting them to common tunes known or easily learned by the people. And then he says this, tunes to which you could beat out the time and which were therefore easily sung. Right, so think of the Psalm 42 that we sing. Sing it. I'm just kidding. But you could you could pound out tunes. It it was easily sung, and it was and the and the the tunes would be something that were singable and somewhat known. Tunes to which you could beat at the time. Palestrina, um, by contrast, was an Italian Roman Catholic composer who lived at the same time as Calvin. He wrote sacred music for the use of the church. And what can't be done is you can't beat out time to his music. Um, You can't bring in a congregation for singing. Palestrina has endless lines, these flowing, broad lines that go on forever. And it just it's sort of amorphous and keeps keeps rolling around very different than what the reformers would have been singing singing the reformers though concerned about the people in the pew not the dead in purgatory moved to tunes to which you could beat out that time and in which everybody could join in um common common tunes and congregational participation being the point 
Another obvious sign of the participation of the people, particularly in Scotland, the people of the congregation came forward to celebrate communion and sat at tables where at one end of the table you would receive the bread and at the other end of the table you would receive the wine. And the, those services went on for quite some time. Three, third, um, Maxwell writes, the scriptures were translated and made accessible to the people. Bibles were placed in all the church churches and the scriptures were read there daily at length so that even those who could not read might hear. So above all else, the reformers were committed to the word of God. Not only did they saturate their services with the word of God, but they had services, the sole purpose of which was to hear the word read. Right? They would come together an hour before the Sunday morning services, and they were just consecutive readings of God's word. Now, is that superfluous with our iPods today and our electronics? You know, many of us listen to the word of God quite a bit, but would it be different and blessed by God if we gathered corporately to hear the word of God read? A very simple liturgical act. Remember, Paul exhorted Timothy to give attention to what? To the public reading of God's word seems to be an official element of of worship. We read a chapter or two during, during our Lord's Day services, but I wonder if we shouldn't do more. And now, um, I'm walking a fine line. There's a sense in which the reading of God's Word without preaching would be good discipline for a narcissistic time. So many pastors are like peacocks when they preach, right? Restricting many of them to merely reading the Word of God and not speaking might actually lead to more nourishment of the people in the pews. Fourth, Maxwell writes, preaching was restored to a prominent place in worship and the people received constant and regular instruction and exhortation out of the scriptures. On Sunday and on certain weekdays alike, the sermons were normally at least one hour in length. At least one hour in length. Note that preaching happened all through the week. We assume that that's because the people didn't have the, the, the opportunity for entertainment that we have today. But that is probably not true. Perhaps they had more of an appetite to hear the word of God preached regularly. Perhaps their pastors were willing to work harder and willing to prepare multiple sermons during the week and lectures on the word of God. And the preaching was not was not uh, flowery. Right. Not in the Protestant church, not in the Reformed church. It was not more aesthetic than substantive. Beza wrote in his sermons on the history of the resurrection, he says this, one must learn this holy rhetoric, not from the principles of the orators, but from the examples and the writings of the prophets and apostles, where one will find neither a contrived manner of writing nor a flowery arrangement of words, but a weight, a gravity and a vehemence, which is apparent to anyone with sound judgment. And the preaching was not merely doctrinal lectures. Again, Beza writes, let us learn here to preach the gospel is not simply to explain a text and deal with several questions of doctrine, as some people would like to insist to try to shut up their pastors when they exceed these limits. But rather, it is necessary to apply the medicine to the patients, for otherwise preaching would be without fruit. Yes and amen to that. Yeah. Fifth, Maxwell writes vestments, all the pretty clothing that the priests of the Roman Catholic Church wore, 
Vestments were discarded and only the clergy's outdoor or preaching habit was retained. Cassock, gown, hood, scarf, bands, or other neckwear, cap, and gloves. Again, this indicates to me that these men were being practical before they were being aesthetic. They understood the importance of dress, but did not have time for the thrills and subtleties. In other words, they, they shunned the mere appearance of authority for the actual exercise of authority. It's one thing to just put on a gown and fake authority. It's another thing to actually exercise it. And so their, their clothing matched their desire. Six. Maxwell makes the following point. Weekly communion was advocated by all the early reformers except for the Scottish, who preferred or were forced to have it less often because of a lack of pastors. Keep in mind that this was also radical for the congregational participation in both in coming to the table and taking both the bread and the wine, which they hadn't been doing. And of course, the reformers emphasized that the Lord's Supper was not to be served apart from the preaching of the word. This was Calvin's lifelong desire, though when he returned to Geneva after his exile in Strasbourg, he did not insist on weekly communion. And so the magistrates, likely following the sense of the people, set it on monthly. They they did what we do. Calvin, on the matter of frequency of communion, says in his institutes, he says this, the Lord's table table should have been spread at least once a week for the assembly of Christians. And the promises declared in it should feed us spiritually. None is indeed to be forcibly compelled, but all are to be urged and aroused. Also, the inertia of indolent people is to be rebuked. All, like hungry men, should flock to such a bounteous repast. Not unjustly did I then did I complain at the outset that this custom was thrust in by the devil's artifice, which in prescribing one day a year renders men lazy, slothful all the rest of the year. Again, though, notice that Calvin announces that along with the Lord's table, there's great responsibility and there's great action in coming to the Lord's table. This can mean nothing less than the necessity of self-examination we are exhorted to in 1 Corinthians 11. Frequent communion, because of what communion entails with self-examination and recognition of the body of Christ and the bread and wine, should fight against spiritual laziness. Right Today, though, we have very short services. We have very short forms, right? An hour and a half worship service. Hour and a half is getting on the long side of a service these days. And we tend to leave off when it comes to the Lord's table. We tend to leave off the proper fencing of the table and the proper prayers of thanksgiving, the proper uh, solemnity and joy of the, of the um, celebration. It's most important today to have a communion service that's brief, That's short, because it's an addition to a somewhat already long and fatiguing service, right? The average length, I'm told, of morning worship services during the time of the Reformation was between two and three hours, and they started at 8 a.m. It occurs to, to us that the early Reformers faced a dilemma because of the length of the service, right? It they could cut short the service of the Lord's table and thus provide it every week, right? 
or they could retain the full length of the service and have the people rebelling against them for the onerous burden of three to four hour worship services. So might this explain why those early reformers who advocated for weekly communion were almost universally willing to settle for much less monthly or even quarterly worship or quarterly Lord's table? They didn't want to trivialize this whole service by shortening the Lord's table liturgy. And so they thought it better to have a full and robust ceremony once a month than have a short and truncated version every week. Given how much the early reformers took in mind the what the people could bear, I think this is a likely explanation for why they were all willing to go to less frequent communion. Luther and his German mass, there were certain things he didn't want to change because he said there's only so much change that the people in the pews can take when it comes to worship. It must be more of a gradual reform. But switching back to thinking about today, I think we can legitimately make the case that those who do not practice weekly communion today more closely reflect the actual practice of the reformers. Those who practice weekly communion, but but just chuck it, you know, chunk it down to a tiny service and leave off prayers and leave off fencing and leave off separating the bread and the wine and leave off solemnity. They bear no resemblance to the practice of the reformers, all of whom were willing to live with that monthly or quarterly communion if, if it was administered properly and would not give up a proper administration. And remember that the only direction Scripture has concerning frequency is what? As often as you do this, right? Which is rather vague. It does not give us a weekly, monthly, quarterly. Our book of church order says do it frequently. Well, again, what does that mean? Does that mean weekly, monthly, quarterly, once a year? Probably not once a year. Let's do it more than that. Seventh. Maxwell makes this point. They put together service books for the use of the people. These service books contain the whole of the liturgy, uh, the psalms that were sung, the prayers that were made. If you had a good income, you were actually required by law to own a Bible and a service book. In a 1579 Act of Parliament, it was decreed that all gentlemen with 300 marks of yearly rent and all substantious yeomen worth 500 pounds in lands or goods, beholden to have a Bible and psalm book. Again, I wonder if such service books would be useful to us today. Um, perhaps that is what we have in bulletins and in projectors. You know, we just, but, but might there be some utility in having a book of songs and prayers, the book of our liturgy, that, that we take with us? Not that we leave in the pew, but that we carry with us like our Bibles. So this bears no resemblance to hymn books that we have today because we leave those behind. We don't carry those with. I'm talking about a psalm book that, that has our liturgies in it and has the basic form of the liturgy. That way we could use them for our family worship. That way we could use them in our private worship. And wouldn't that be helpful for us in preparing for Lord's Day worship? We would be ready then to be ear-focused and not eye-focused. Eighth and last, the creeds were recited, particularly the Apostles' Creed. In Calvin's Strasbourg liturgy, a metrical version of the Apostles' Creed was sung. So it's a lie to say that Calvin 
espoused exclusive psalmody. It's just not true. He had the Apostles' Creed. They sang the Ten Commandments. They sang the Song of Simeon. At least that's uh, things other than psalms they sang. In his Genevan liturgy, it was recited by the congregation but not sung. The Roman Catholic liturgy, before their time, all used the Nicene Creed. Right? And, and the Reformers all seemed to opt for the Apostles' Creed. And I haven't read anywhere why the Reformers went this direction. I think that it, it, um, I think that it boils down to the, the Apostles' Creed is more, is more condensed and, and a tight explanation of, of theology. But it may just been to set, set their worship apart from that of the Mass to not recite the same creed, although they didn't deny the Nicene Creed. They still uh, thought the Nicene Creed was orthodoxy. They went to the Apostles' Creed. I think that all, so all those eight points, I think all that Maxwell says about the early worship of the Reformers can be boiled down to two words, simplicity and, and communication. Simplicity and understandability. Right, the liturgy, the language, the music, the clothing were all simple that, so that the word of God would be communicated and God would be worshipped by the congregation. Simplicity for the sake of communication and simplicity for the sake of participation. Right, simple language, simple music, simple clothing, simple service book, simple exhortation, simple participation. And so the simplicity and the vulgarity of the services would have been offensive to the Roman Catholics who had made worship about mystery and it was distant and it was to be observed but not participated in it was in front of you but not around you you know it it was completely different but the reforms made worship about the participation of the people Um, if we are more concerned about the aesthetics of our worship than we are about communication if we're more concerned about the aesthetics than communication, those who lead our worship services have to be artists before they're pastors. Right? They will have to be well-trained in aesthetics, but not in theology. Arguing about styles, styles of music, which is that's what the worship wars have been throughout the past 30 years. It's been about style. Arguing about styles is not just decadent, but it is indicative of having higher priorities in worship than simplicity for the sake of communication. Right? It is to have different priorities than the Word of God. Now, what were the specifics of the liturgy that formed the worship of Strasbourg, Geneva, and Scotland? That's the handout you have. Look at that just for a moment. Well, first let me explain that this is, this is, this is Calvin's liturgy. This is Calvin's Strasbourg liturgy, not the liturgy he used in Geneva. Maxwell makes the point that the Strasbourg liturgy was closer to what Calvin would have liked, but he had to submit to the magistrates and cut things. So this is what Calvin would have um, desired the worship to look like. So the first slide is the service of the word. That would be a worship service without the Lord's table. And then the other one incorporates the Lord's table. So they would enter into worship with an opening sentence or a, uh, one, one verse of a psalm, like Psalm 124.8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Immedi- so, so spoken word right off the bat. Immediately they go into a confession of sin. So there's been no singing. It's been right into a confession of sin. Then a prayer for forgiveness. Then words of comfort, which were sentences from Scripture, 
about God forgiving sins, and then a declaration of God's forgiveness, also known as an absolution. They would uh, declare God's forgiveness upon the people. After that, they would sing the Ten Commandments, a metrical version of the Decalogue. And after every command, they would sing a Kyrie eleison. So they would sing a Lord have mercy. Later it became after each of the tables, they would sing a Kyrie eleison. And so just look at what we have up to this point. One sentence of, of to call to worship and then confession of sin. Confession of sin, forgiveness of sin, absolution, singing of the Ten Commandments, a reminder of God's law. And then the prayer of illumination, which would have preceded the, the sermon. Prayer for illumination of the word. And that would go into the Lord's Prayer. So they recited the Lord's Prayer. After that, the scripture reading, which would be either the sermon text or a consecutive reading. Then the sermon, which was at least an hour. And then an offering for the poor. And the reason it's called an offering for the poor is because they didn't, the, the, the city taxed people for the tithes and offerings, right? They, they, and so the church's expenses were, were um, received in the taxes of the city. And so this was actually an offering that the money just went to the use of the deacons for the poor. It'd be like our benevolence offering. And then after that was the pastoral prayer. So the pastoral prayer follows the preaching of the word. And then this long paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer, which Maxwell says was kind of annoyingly long and lugubrious and, and boring. But nonetheless, that's what they did. Then they would sing a metrical psalm, singing a psalm, and then close with a benediction like um, the Aaronic blessing of number six. Right? So that's the service. Very simple, very similar to what we have and um, if you notice there, though, I put out beside it word and prayer in parentheses. Almost every element of the service is, is either the word of God read or preached or prayer. And so it's just two simple elements that make up the service. If they were going to have a service of the Lord's Supper, if you go down to the next slide, again, it's all the same until you get down to the sermon, offering for the poor, pastoral prayer, long paraphrase, the Lord's Prayer, and then they would sing the Apostles' Creed while the elements of the table are being prepared. And then they would um, do the prayer of preparation, just an opening prayer for the Lord's table service, and the Lord's Prayer again. So that's multiple times that they will do the Lord's Prayer. Basically, any official prayer is ended with the Lord's Prayer. And then the words of institution, the long exhortation, which that would be the fencing of the table and the distribution of the, the bread and the wine. They would, they would serve communion while, metric, while singing metrical psalm or psalms. And then the meal would close with a prayer of thanksgiving and the song of Simeon and the benediction. So again, word and prayer. What they sang was the word and what they prayed was the word. And um, so it's a, a service that was simple but... But uh, steeped in those two things, ministry of the word and prayer. And that's that's indeed what the apostles, when the deacons were formed, that's what the apostles said they would give themselves to. And so you see that the worship sort of follows that pattern of the apostles, you know, in, in Acts 6, 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, they said. 
If you looked at other liturgies from the early Reformation period, they might add a few elements or subtract from this liturgy or have a slightly different order, but the basic similarity is striking. They all incorporate those two things, word and prayer. So last point, and I'll be done. And the point I was supposed to address anyway. Um, What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? To worship God in spirit and in truth is to do what I mentioned before. The Reformers understood from Scripture that our worship due to Christ's work of redemption could now be more from the ear than from the eye. God is spirit. So as Henderson points out, he is not some stone deity or tree deity, and neither is he a mountain deity, so that he has to be worshipped on this or that specific mountain. Nor have the old ways of the temple any use in worship after Christ, except in their helping us to understand God's holiness and Christ's sacrifice. They teach us about our approach to God and how, to, how important our union with Christ is in that approach. But there's more to that passage, John 4.24, than that. And Calvin gets us to that. Here's what Calvin says on John 4.24. There's a confirmation drawn from the very nature of God. Since men are flesh, we ought not to wonder if they take delight in those things which correspond to their own disposition. Hence it arises that they contrive many things in the worship of God which are full of display, but have no solidity. But they ought, first of all, to consider that they have to do with God, who can no more agree with the flesh than fire with water. This single consideration, when the inquiry relates to the worship of God, ought to be sufficient for restraining the wantonness of our mind, that God is so far from being like us, that those things which please us most are the objects of his loathing and abhorrence. And if hypocrites are so blinded by their own pride that they are not afraid to subject God to their own opinion, or rather to their unlawful desires, let us know that this modesty does not hold the lowest place in the true worship of God to regard with suspicion whatever is gratifying according to the flesh. Besides, As we cannot ascend to the height of God, let us remember that we ought to seek from his word the rule by which we are governed. And so when Jesus said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, he was giving us a theology of worship. Right. Put negatively, Jesus was saying that those who worship him must not worship by physical objects and by their own imagination. Put another way, we are taught that worship is not by things one can hold in the hand, but rather by the Spirit. And here's the controversial statement. Aesthetics aesthetics in worship often become uh, worship according to the flesh. Right? It doesn't matter whether you are highbrow or lowbrow in your aesthetics. When we begin to discuss a topic that is not addressed in Scripture, like musical aesthetics, like what kind of style to use, we are in great danger of worshiping God according to the flesh rather than in spirit and truth. To give ourselves over to that which is merely beautiful and satisfying in our worship rather than that which is commanded by God in his word, which may incidentally be beautiful and satisfying and sophisticated, is to make man the arbiter of what is good in worship. And so the goal of our worship is to be properly approaching a holy God by faith in Jesus Christ. His son approaching Jesus Christ his son in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It is to meet with God on his terms and not according to our own imaginations. It is to enjoy him. It's to receive from him and be in awe of him. It is not to impress him. Right? He meets with us and we meet with him. And it is not the excellence of our harmony and the excellence of our counterpoint that will commend us to God. It is not the perfection of our mouths and their diction. Rather, it is doing all that we do to the glory of God and by faith in his son. By faith in his son. It is simply that faith. God wants our hearts to be near to him and our mouths to be near to him, but not our mouths without our hearts. Our hearts must be near to him by faith. This has been a presentation of Warhorn Media. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com and welcome to the Reformation.